Well, our text this morning is Psalm 87. Psalm 87. On the, mount, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab in Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Thus far the reading of God's holy and errant word. New year. New me. That's what we often hear, isn't it, around this time of year. Um, Sometimes we're the ones actually saying it, and we've likely all been there wanting to use the beginning of a year to have a clean slate, um, to create a renewed sense of discipline, um, change our habits. However, study upon study shows that We make very big plans, but fail to carry them out. According to Forbes, 80% of Americans admit to abandoning their New Year's resolutions by February. Clearly, we love to make big plans, don't we? Well, this morning, I'd like us to take time to look away from ourselves and and look to the God who has never failed a plan never broken a promise, he's never had a plan fall through. And when it comes to the city of God, the city that he founded, he is going to ensure his plan for that city will be carried out. And his plan is, is to dwell among his people and to expand his city to the ends of the earth. And when it comes to this city, the psalmist gives us Three things worth noting. The first is the presence in the city. The second is the people of the city. And finally, the plan for the city. So he tells us the presence, the people, and the plan. Our first point is that within the city is the presence of God. Now, there are two things worth considering with this presence of God. First is its location. Verse 1 tells us this presence is on the holy mountain. Now, mountains are very important imagery in Scripture. Um, Take, for example, Noah's Ark. It stops on a mount um, after the floodwaters subside, and Noah and his family leave the ark, and they're to go out throughout the world and, and go throughout the world, be fruitful and multiply, and God makes a covenant with Noah. Take Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Right before he's about to sacrifice his son, he has an encounter with God who tells him to stop. Moses and Mount Sinai. Moses receives the law from God and God makes a covenant with Moses. 
Christ's most famous sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. So very clearly, Scripture is littered with this mountain imagery, but why is this significant? Well, it's significant because mountains are meeting places of God. They are places where God meets with his people, and then people meet with their God. And the psalmist, when he's using this imagery of the mount, um, he's... He's in, he's in, his intention is to call to mind God's covenant with Israel, which leads us to the next thing to consider with this presence of God is its covenantal significance. Without God's covenant with Israel, there's no Israel, there's no people. Um, and if there's no Israel, then it's likely that this psalm is never written and it's likely that it's never even sung. Um, now, what covenant does the psalmist have in mind? It's likely that he has in mind the Abrahamic covenant because the nation of Israel, the city of God, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would make from him nations and kings and a multitude of people in Genesis 17. Notice that it's not the city itself that is great and glorious, but rather the God who dwells within the city. It is the presence of the holy God that consecrates and makes the city holy. It makes the mountain holy. And apart from his presence, it's just any old city. Israel is just like any other people apart from the presence of God. Their buildings are nothing special. They're like any other nation because the people, because the people are in covenant with God and because God dwells in their midst, the psalmist can say, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. He loves the gates of Zion because he lives there. He's from there. I'm not sure many of you know this, but I'm a very big Ohio State football fan. <laughs> um, I'm not from Ohio. I wasn't born in Ohio. Um, and what's worse is, is my parents tried very hard to make me a Michigan fan, too. Um, so they were pretty upset about that. <laughs> but God's love for his city is not like my affinity for Ohio. God loves Zion because he lives there. He, he dwells there. He's the one that formed the city in the first place. He's the one that formed the people. This love is not based on anything inherent to the people, though. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Even in verse 4 when the psalmist says, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. He's not necessarily saying that the city is great and glorious. No, he's saying that the city is glorious connected with God's covenant and his faithfulness to his promise. It's what's been spoken of or about this city is what is glorious. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Which leads us to the second point about the city of God, the people of the city. The people. The people themselves aren't what make this city great, but God still loves them because their finite sins cannot curb God's eternal purpose. And he has big plans for his presumably little city. We're told in Deuteronomy 7-7 that God didn't choose them because they were fabulous, not even because they were more numerous than the, than the other nations. In fact, they were the least of the nations. They had the fewest peoples. 
When the psalmist says the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, this love for the people is rooted in his own faithfulness, his own promise, not their performance, not their worship. It can't be because Israel struggled to do those things the entire time. So when we consider the people of this city, we must first realize who they are and whose they are. They belong to God. We've already seen that they are in covenant with God, but what this means for the people is that they are bound to him. They are bound to a holy God. They have a calling upon them. They are to be a city upon a hill, a light to the nations. Other nations were to look at Israel and look at their external prosperity and the favor that God gave them and be drawn to worship them or to worship their God. Not drawn to worship them, to worship their God. And this external prosperity is what got Israel in trouble at times. They often became prideful. They, they began to um, make other idols and set up um, high, idols on high places, on other mountains. Israel was obligated to worship their holy God as a holy nation and a holy people. Worship Yahweh in response to his redemption. God redeemed Israel, and they owed him worship. And he was very clear in giving them instruction for how they can approach him. They were to avoid certain foods and observe purity laws, teaching them what exactly it meant to be holy and set apart. But the other nations were always in view. The psalmist says God has big plans for the city, glorious plans. And he spends verses 4 through 7 unfolding these plans. The people of this city not only belong to God, but are global and diverse. He says in verse 4, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab in Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. He's listing nation after nation, but the first two are interesting. Um, Rahab would stand for Egypt, the great power to the south of Israel. And Babylon would stand for, the, for Babylon, the great power to the north of Israel. And so what we have here is this picture of the two greatest powers at the time and all the nations in between being engrafted into the city of God. And the psalmist says they know the Lord. And this knowledge is not just knowing of the Lord or about the Lord, like when um, the Lord would fight battles with Israel and they would be victorious and the other nations would hear about the battle and be trembling at the knees. No, they know the Lord. This is an intimate and experiential knowledge. They know him like Israel knows him, as one they owe worship to, as one they owe allegiance to. This would also be the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that not only would he multiply his offspring, but there would be international blessing flowing from Zion to the nations. So the psalmist says in verse 7, Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. He's talking about Zion. He's painting a beautiful picture of the nations rejoicing and praising God together, this diverse group. They're worshiping God because he did not leave them outside his covenant. He did not leave them outside the gates of Zion, but has brought them in. It's as if he's swung the gates wide open, as it were. This is the same picture John paints in Revelation. 
In Revelation 7, 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The psalmist and John spoke of a day when the life-giving salvation would flow out like streams out of Zion and give life to the, to the Gentiles. This would fulfill God's promise to Abraham that his offspring would bless all the families of the earth. And one day a diverse multitude of people would worship the true and living God. And what better blessing is it to be, what better blessing is it than to be in covenant with God, to be in his presence, for him to be in our midst, even right now as we worship him. Which leads us to our final point, God's plan for the city. What's important about verses 4 and 7 is that the psalmist knew that it took Israel literally blood, sweat, and tears to get into the promised land in the first place and to remain there comfortably. They were fighting the very people that are now said to have a share in the city. Now, how can this be? Why would this city include other nations? You have to imagine um, singing the psalm in Israel and wondering, man, we've been fighting these other nations the entire time and God's just going to let them into our city? That sounds very dangerous. Commentators even note this psalm is likely written around the time when Israel just got done beating Assyria, one of the greatest world powers. And this would be during the reign of Hezekiah. Please turn with me to Chronicles, Second Chronicles 32. Second Chronicles chapter 32, beginning in verse 22. Beginning in verse 22. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. So clearly the psalmist is writing in a time of victory where Israel is seen as a formidable opponent in the eyes of its enemies. Now, why is this important? Because this context explains why the psalmist writes with great confidence and why he has such high hopes for the city of God. And why Israel, frankly, should not be afraid that God is going to incorporate them into the city. Israel just be Assyria, think this is one of the greatest powers ever. And the psalmist doesn't seem faith. He's basically saying that, you know what, we did just beat Assyria, and our God is on our side, and he's not just content with that win. He, he's coming for it all. He's going to expand his city. He's going to expand his kingdom, and there's not a thing you can do about it. He has great confidence in the city of God. So in verse 5, the psalmist speaks as if 
the city is already done a done deal. And God's plan has already been carried out. And accounting of the people is being done for the records. Verse 5. This one and that one were born in her. And then verse 6. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. And notice who's doing the recording. It says, the Lord records. Which shows he, he's not just expanding a city and expanding an empire with no regard for who's within the empire. He has this intimate knowledge of every single person. He knows all of them by name. He knows the day they were born. He knows the number of hairs on their heads. Now, wouldn't you love for God to care for you in this way? To know you by name. Then you need to be registered in the city of God. And if you're a Christian today, then you already are. If you're a Christian today, the drama of Psalm 87 is your drama. Its story is your story. Yes, Zion was an earthly city with physical gates. Um, God gave them land. He had very big plans for his old covenant people. He gave them earthly prosperity. And he, he fulfilled his promise to Abraham that from Abraham would come nations and, and kings. But his plan for you this year is that you would realize that through Jesus Christ, God is creating a new people, a new nation, a new city. God's plan for his city has reached its fullest expression in Jesus Christ. God's presence is in the church by the Holy Spirit who has taken residence in our hearts. He has consecrated us as a people. He has made us holy. And because we are holy, we are to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The, peop the people of the city are royal priesthood, a holy nation made up of those from all around the world, who all worship the one true and living God. God's plan for his church is her salvation and success. He plans to nourish her through word and sacrament. He plans to increase her number numerically through evangelism and the preaching of his gospel. The church is set apart from the world, but it's set apart for the world. God's plan for his church is that we be holy even as he is holy because he's redeemed us. It's when the church becomes like the world and looks like the world in doctrine and in lifestyle that we have nothing relevant to give to the world. No, we don't need to become like the world. We live for God. We live and serve him and we worship him. We're faithful in our vocation, whatever that may be. And we share the gospel whenever we can. And God will carry out his plan for his church, for his glorious city, through and in spite our weak efforts. As we close, we must realize that this city God is building is not built primarily through human effort. It's not built primarily through um, man's exertion because unless the Lord builds the house, all who labor, labor in vain. It would fail like 
in uh, any other New Year's resolution. No, this plan is of divine origin. It is rooted in the eternal purpose of God. And God will do what it takes to fulfill this plan. In fact, he already has started fulfilling this plan by defeating our two greatest enemies, sin and death, through the death and resurrection of his son. What happens then if you're, if you're not registered in this city of God? What happens if you're left outside of its gates? Then when you die, you are not secure. You have no rest. You are not safe. You are cut off from God's love, cut off from his favor. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, but all who are not found within these gates, while they are wide open for you to come in them, will be locked out forever. Through Jesus Christ, how do you open, how do you enter the city? It is through Jesus Christ who says, I am the door. All who enter by me will be saved. So I urge you today, don't, don't make plan after plan this year that may or may not fall through. Don't be that person James is talking about in James 4.13. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade, make a profit. No, this year, matter of fact, tonight, your life might be required of you. You are not guaranteed another year. So resolve right now what city you will be a part of. Will you be a part of the cities of this world which are passing away? Or will you be a part of the city of God which will endure forever? Great cities have risen in the past and even greater empires have fallen, came tumbling down. And I'm sure they all had plans to last forever. They didn't plan on crumbling down. Dear believer, take comfort today that you are registered in this city of God. And because it will endure forever, so will you. This city that God is building is built to last because it's rooted in God's promise that not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And God has never broke a promise. Next, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. And we are an unworthy people, but you sought us out. We did not look for you. We did not plan on being a part of your city, but you have, by your spirit, caused us to be born again into the city of God. And now we are a holy people called to worship you, a holy God. And so we pray that you would help us to do just that through the mediation of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.